What did Gerd say about this? You just told him how many people you needed and you're not buying them. You're buying them, you're paying it for each of these names. If you were still working for me, I'd expect you to talk me out of it. It's costing me a fortune. Finish the page and leave one space at the bottom. Dear listeners, welcome back to Ramblin' and Amblin' Podcast, the podcast where we take a look back over the films of Amblin' Entertainment, the production company founded by Steven Spielberg, Frank Marshall, and Kathleen Kennedy way back in 1981. I am one half of your host, Andy Godey. And I'm the other half of your host, Joshua Glenn. And uh, it's been a, been a while out of action, but uh, as you can see by the episode title, this is not one that we would have liked to have rushed. No, no one that we approached lightly. No, no. Well, we are indeed talking about Steven Spielberg's 1993 um, wartime historical drama, uh, Schindler's List. Winner of seven Academy Awards and um, the first time that Steven Spielberg himself won for Best Director and is a film very much that has been heralded across time as one of uh, Hollywood cinema's kind of best reflections of this period as mm-hmm. as as well as any hollywood film can so to speak and that and it's a it's quite a it's quite a topic to dive into it's a a little intimidating <laughs> you can say that i was certainly been intimidated <laughs> by this, as to going to our religious upbringings because they weren't really in existence, were they? I no. don't, don't suppose. <laughs> Two little uh, Church of England English boys <laughs> talking about something that's so out of our frame of reference. Yeah. So we've tried our best, much like with The Colour of Purple, which was a perspective that we the color of had purple. no... The Colour of Purple. <laughs> <laughs> which is a perspective that we had no business discussing. We've tried to mitigate this indeed with as much... Uh, extra reading and extra testimonies. We love reading. As we could. And we will be joined later on in the episode by Michael Efferton, our 
the chief executive over at uh, UK Jewish Film. Uh, he was very, we're very grateful to mm. Michael for giving up some of his time to uh, discuss his thoughts and feelings on this film, uh, as well as the work that they do at the UK Jewish Absolutely. Film and its upcoming festival in November. Uh, so we look forward to sharing that with you further down the line in the episode. But uh, as always, we will start with a synopsis. So I'll, mm-hmm. hand, I'll hand it over to you, Joshua Glenn, um, for your synopsis on Schindler's List. Oscar Schindler, played by Liam Neeson, is a German-Czech industrialist and member of the Nazi party. He arrives in Krakow as the Nazis are tearing the Jewish population out of their homes and forcing them into the ghetto, hoping to exploit the situation to his advantage and make his fortune. He bribes high-ranking Wehrmacht and SS officials to get them on side, manipulates his way into acquiring a factory, and hires Itzhak Stern, played by Ben Kingsley, to handle the finances and make use of his black market contacts. On his end, Stern uses the situation to ensure that as many Jewish workers as possible are hired by convincing Schindler that it's cheaper to use Jewish workers than non-Jewish Polish labour. Schindler acquiesces and, together, he and Stern see the business blossom into a success. The new equilibrium is disrupted with the arrival of Amon Goth, played by Ray Fiennes, a second lieutenant of the SS positioned there to oversee the construction of the Platzal concentration camp. Once the construction is completed, he orders the ghetto to be liquidated and the Jewish population to be moved there. Schindler is on a hill overlooking the town while this rehousing is taking place and witnesses the true barbarism of the Nazis. Homes are raided, families are massacred, the area is mostly destroyed. This continues as life in the camp is established, with the bored and detached goth taking out his frustration on his Jewish prisoners in increasing the cruel and vicious ways. Schindler continues to maintain the SS's good graces through bribery and drunken debauchery, but seeing the the atrocities committed in the name of his ostensible party, gradually starts to shift his focus from turning a profit to saving as many lives as possible. As the tide of the war turns and the German loss appears on the horizon, Goth is ordered to transport the remaining Jews from Platzau to Auschwitz. In a last-ditch effort to save the life in a last-ditch effort to save the lives of his workers, Schindler creates a list of 850 names who he hopes to spare from the ultimate fate of the Nazis. Nicely done. Nicely done. Not an easy one. Not an easy one, no. And uh, I'm sure it's one that a lot of people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. But that's the sort of narrative structure, if indeed yeah. you can call it that, for Spielberg and... Uh, and indeed, the author of the original book, uh, Thomas, Thomas Kelly. Kelly. That's right here. Yeah. Four. Yes. That's <laughs> right for me, isn't it? Yeah. Slash Schindler's List. Yeah. Um, I, it's something we touch on in our chat with Michael, but um, I remember particularly finding Schindler's List for the first time at school in history lessons. Yeah, likewise. It being used as, the kind, as a reference point for talking about the Holocaust in history lessons. Yeah. Um, and it... Beyond that, I didn't. I've never really seen much else around Oscar Schindler himself. Seen plenty of um, further films about the Holocaust mm. from di- different perspectives across. I mean, there's been quite a few since Schindler's List. Not mm. too many that I can think of pre, but there's certainly been quite. There were certainly quite a few posts. Inspired as many imitations i suppose as re- probably even more reactions against yeah. than imitations a lot of films much this is what michael gets into in our discussion shortly 
but I think as many filmmakers wanted to, def- to explore the Holocaust in a way that was defined against what Spielberg did with this mm-hmm. as you know as explore just or even to like test the boundaries of what even further even further test the boundaries of what an actual Holocaust film yeah. could be well bloody like Huey Bowl yeah Jojo or, Rabbit or like say Huey Bowl <laughs> yeah <laughs> a, that one, one of the least one of the least appropriate combinations of person and theme imaginable Uwe Boll, director of in famous of video game, game flops. Alone in the Dark. <laughs> House of the Dead. House of the Dead. Auschwitz. It was just called Auschwitz. Just Auschwitz. Yeah. Auschwitz. Okay. Jesus. And I think he's one of the only, because we'll get into this again later on, mm. but there's, well, specifically the shower scene in Schindler's List. And one of the things around that is that like no one could, should, or would depict mm. the gas chambers in cinema. But I think, if I'm not mistaken, Uwe Ball is one, maybe the only person that ever has done that. I think in this film he does show. Mm-hmm. Born the striped pajamas, stock players. Want that as well. Fuck that. We, we, again, we talk, <laughs> we talk around this with with Michael Etter, but fuck that movie. Yeah, that's a very problematic. That movie. is, and in fact, I think we can weave that into what you and I get into shortly as well. Yeah, because this this film isn't guilty of any of the same sin. Mm-hmm. Certainly not to that extent, but it does. I think layer groundwork that the boy in the striped pajamas takes to an extreme. Yeah, and to kind of like look at it in the place of Amblin Entertainment. So mm. let's remember where Spielberg is at this time. It's 1993 is the same year he has Jurassic Park yeah. out, and this is what we've often teased as the kind of fulcrum point yeah, for Spielberg sure. as a filmmaker, and even as Ent- Amblin Entertainment as a production house, because you see we've had dramas before we've had wartime dramas with empire of the sun and we've had um the aforementioned color purple and also the more mawkish types of your dads and always so and a dangerous woman (laughs) (laughs) so it's not a production company that like despite the kind of attachments that a lot of people have Mm. it's not one that's always known for you know those hollywood picked like the Hollywood blockbuster pictures that yeah. perhaps we, when we thought of this idea to do this podcast, were mainly thinking about yeah. And then you realize that there are going to be ones where you, you yeah. do have to take it more seriously. It's not all preteen boys and girls exactly. on bikes with torches. And it, it does make this uh, journey and this uh, project that we mm-hmm. started that much more fulfilling. Um, so let's get into some of the history that builds up to the eventual film of Schindler's List, shall we? Um, before getting into our conversation with Michael. Um, ideas for a film about the Schindler, June, the Schindler Jews was proposed as early as, ni- as the 1960s, with MGM announcing a biopic on Oscar Schindler himself in 1964, which was to be written by Howard Koch and to be directed by Delbert Mann, but never materialised. Mm-hmm. The real driving force, though, for the story to be told on such a scale came from Poldek uh, Pfefferberg, who was one of the Schindler-Juden who survived and was on, uh, who, and he had made it his life, pretty much his life's mission to tell Schindler's story, to the point where whenever he would meet anybody who was an author or a screenwriter or a director, he would just basically chew their ear off telling him, telling them that this story so yes, he was. He had made it his business to make a film based on the story of Schindler and his efforts to save Polish Jews from the Nazis, as well as having arranged several interviews uh, with Schindler for American television to make sure that he was someone who was known 
in the public conscious, particularly in the West. And it was during this time, uh, it was around the late 70s, early 80s, that um, Pfefferberg met novelist Thomas Kennelly, um, who was who had been shopping in Pfefferberg's shop in Beverly Hills, um, trying to buy a briefcase of all things. And, we, and they were haggling over the price of, uh, uh, of one of Pfefferberg's briefcases. But upon le- learning that Kennelly was a novelist, Pfefferberg showed him his extensive files that he had on Schindler, which he kept in his shop. Mm. And um, right in the two cabinets in the room, I, I guess for this for any moment where he might happen to meet someone being set up in Beverly Hills of all places that might be able to do something with this and get it out again to as wide an audience as possible. And he managed to convince Kennelly to write the book with Kennelly himself being um, awed by the story itself, um, which led to Pfefferberg becoming an advisor on the novel accompanying Kennelly to Poland where they visited Krakow and other sites associated with the Schindler story. In fact, Kennelly dedicated Schindler's art to Pfefferberg, writing, by zeal and persistence, caused this book to be written. Um, the Australian novelist's work uh, won the British Booker Prize and was awarded the Los Angeles Time Book Prize for fiction upon its publication in 1983. And that's when it caught the attention of our pal, Sid Scheinberg. Sid Scheinberg is <laughs> yeah. living breathe. Or is it chairman still at UCA, which is um, the Universal's parent company mm-hmm. at the time, or MCA? I can't remember which one it is, but one of MCA, the parent yeah. company of Universal. Um, a little more on the book in terms of like the way it kind of frames the story. It is very much a non-fiction text that kind of imagines conversations that were had between people that Kennedy's managed to reconstruct. Um, from testimonies and the extent of research that he did into into the book. So it, while it reads like structured fiction, it is very much a non-fiction text mm-hmm. built entirely upon the testimonies of a vast number of uh, Schindler, Schindler Jews that he managed to talk and interview and that um, Pfefferberg managed to put him in touch with. Um, but it was Sid Scheinberg who initially got Spielberg involved in the project, sending a, re- a review of the book to Spielberg as early as the, um, uh, well, as early as 1983. Astounded by Schindler's story, uh, Spielberg jokingly asked if it was true as he was drawn to the paradoxical nature of the man, saying, what would drive a man like this to suddenly take everything he had earned and put it all in the service of saving these lives? Spielberg had expressed enough interest to Universal Pictures um, that they went ahead and bought the rights to the novel. And uh, Spielberg then first met Pfefferberg himself in spring 1983, and he made a promise to him there that he would start filming it in 10 years. Um, and in the end credits of the film, um, again, similar to Kennelly's test, uh, mm-hmm. um, dedication to Pfefferberg. <clears throat> Pfefferberg is credited under the name Leopold Page, and he is also played in the film. He, he does feature in the film. You do hear his name a few times. But um, the reason why he made this promise that he would make it within 10 years it was because Spielberg himself was unsure if he was mature enough to tackle the film. We are talking about the Spielberg that was just coming off the back of E.T. and perhaps more chiefly Raiders of the Lost yeah. Ark, which has the, you know, the 30 serial idea of a Nazi bad guy. It's a Nazi punching, yeah. swashbuckling, yeah. Rom- socking yeah. old Hitler in the jaw sort of, sort uh-huh. of vibe. So 
this isn't this isn't something that really feels like it's even in his skill set or wheelhouse in the early 80s and as such he did start to develop a bit of a guilty conscience about having this project and mm-hmm. not not doing anything with it and so he did try passing it on to other directors first off he tried passing it to roman polanski who refused spielberg's offer Pol- polanski himself was quite had his mother was killed at Auschwitz and he had lived through and survived the Krakow ghetto. So hence why Spielberg felt he was an appropriate filmmaker to tackle the material. But of course, Polanski himself would eventually go on to direct his own Holocaust drama with the pianist in 1992. Uh, um, After Polanski um, refused, Spielberg also offered the film to Sidney Pollock. Uh, Billy Wilder was apparently interested. Mm. Um, But ultimately... The first director who got properly attached to the project was one Martin Scorsese, as you may recall from our Kate Fear episode. And it was at this point when Scorsese was kind of entering very early pre-production stages that what after kind of having that guilty conscience and passing on the film, Spielberg then started feeling a little uncomfortable about not doing it himself and particularly handing it off to Scorsese, who you've seen a Scorsese film you know the man's Catholic (laughs) (laughs) there are some suggestions in his films Uh, Spielberg himself saying I've given away a chance to do something for my children and my family about the Holocaust and it was this that um, inspired him to uh, go back to Scorsese in 1991 well in the early 90s and say you do the Kate Fear remake and I'll take back Schindler's List, to which uh, Scorsese was more than happy to do. Okay, sure. sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, another driving force as to why Spielberg decided to make this film in the early 90s was the fact that he noticed a rise in Holocaust deniers, um, particularly the fact that they were being given serious consideration by the media. Early both sidesism. Yeah, exactly. And it was also a rise of neo-Nazism after the fall of the Berlin Wall in the early 90s, um, leading Spielberg and I'm sure countless others around the world to worry that people were too accepting of intolerance mm. as they had been in the build-up to the rise of fascism in the 1930s. Not something we can really frame today with no. the reference, is it? No, not at all. I don't no, think there's anything I even remotely close think. to that going on right now. Jesus Christ. I know, man. It never changes. No. It's just cyclical, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, every, every 30 or so years. As, again, as we'll get into... T- our conversation with Michael, I think, uh, as relevant as this film was for that discussion in 1993, it was as relevant as it was for its 25th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And it, again, I can imagine the com- same sort of conversations coming up again around it as it hits 30 <laughs> next year. Uh, um, so with Spielberg finally committing and feeling he was mature enough and driven enough to make the movie uh, in the early 90s, Sid Scheinberg greenlit the film on the condition Spielberg made Jurassic Park first with Spielberg later saying he knew that once I directed Schindler I would not be able to make uh-huh. a film like yeah. Jurassic Park Jurassic Park would be a very different film if that came oh, second so different um, the film was assigned a small budget of 22 million dollars as Holocaust films were not usually profitable with Spielberg foregoing a salary for the film claiming it would be blood money to yeah. be paid for such a project wow um, when it came to the script, back in 83, Kennelly had been hired to adapt his book initially by Universal, and he had turned in a 220-page script. 
This adaptation focused largely on Schindler's numerous relationships, with Kennelly himself admitting at the time that he did not compress the story enough. Spielberg then hired Kurt Lutke, Lutke, who had adapted the screenplay of Out of Africa to write the next draft. Lutke, though, gave up after... gave up almost four years later as he found Schindler's change of heart too unbelievable to construct. That's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Very, very wild. This truism, this character. It's like, but it happened. (laughs) It's a hard thing to... It is hard. And I'm sure we'll get into it a bit more in our more more general discussion. But yeah, it's an interesting point of the film. Uh, And and generally of the story. Mm. It's why Oscar Schindler himself is such a fascinating character. Yeah, sure. Um, so it was during the time that Scorsese was attached that Stephen Zalian was hired to write a script. And Stephen Zalian has gone on to work with Scorsese a few times, most recently The Irishman. Um, and he first turned in a 115-page draft to Spielberg, uh, which uh, Spielberg himself deemed too short and asked him to extend it to at least 195 pages. Uh, Spielberg was keen to have more of a focus on the Jews in the story and wanted Schindler's transition to be gradual and ambiguous instead of a sudden breakthrough or epiphany. He also extended the ghetto liquidation sequence, which initially I believe was only one page in the script, as he felt very strongly that the sequence almost had to be unwatchable. Mm. When it eventually with the script locked in, the next phase, of course, was casting. And again, quite an intimidating prospect, I imagine, for any actor let alone someone who isn't really established on the, in the yeah. scene yet, as was the case for Liam Neeson, who auditioned for Schindler um, quite early on in the 90s and was cast by December 1992 after Spielberg had been convinced after seeing a performance in, of, Neeson's of, of Neeson in Anna Christie on Broadway. Other names that were considered were Warren Beatty, who, who had part- uh, participated in the script reading, although Spielberg was concerned that he would not be able to disguise his accent and would bring too much movie star baggage. Mm, no, you don't say. And talking of movie star baggage, um, oh boy. the um, two actors also expressed interest in the role. Former Groover Kevin Costner. Of course he did. And Mel Gibson. Jesus. Of all people. Um, but Spielberg preferred to cast a then relatively unknown Neeson, yeah. believing that the actor's star quality would not overpower the character. Yeah, Smart move. Mm, it's very smart. Neeson himself uh, got into the idea of playing Oscar Schindler as he found the character fascinating, believing he enjoyed outsmarting Nazis who regarded him as somewhat naive. They don't take him quite seriously, and he and he used that to full effect, said Neeson. To help him prepare for the role, Spielberg showed Neeson film clips of Time Warner CEO Steve Ross, who had a charisma that Spielberg felt comparable to Schindler's. He also located a tape of Schindler speaking, which Neeson studied to learn the correct intonations and pitch for to play Oscar. Ray finds his cast as Aaron Goff after Spielberg viewed his performance in The Dangerous Man, where he played uh, Lawrence... Uh, well, I think the subtitle of that film was Lawrence, Lawrence After, after Arabia. Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and in an adaptation of Wuthering Heights. Um, speaking of, Spiel- of Fine's audition, Spielberg said, I saw a sexual evil. It's all about subtlety, that there were moments of kindness that would move across his eyes and then instantly run cold. Mm. I can't, I really can't picture Spielberg saying sexual evils. <laughs> I 
That's a good way of describing it. I think Fiennes has that presence. It. Yeah. And even outside of his film roles, mm-hmm. you look at the man and you do see that. It was such an important role to get right as well, because mm. even this, both the film and the book are very much the two men and their stories and mm. kind of the recollections of these two figures who came to symbolize such different looming yeah. figures for the pe- the people both in the factory and in the camps. Yeah. So you have to you have to really nail it, and um, fi- finds himself with what sh- historic new reels and taught to Holocaust survivors in New Goth. Uh, with Fine saying, "I got close to his pain inside him as a fractured, miserable human being. I feel split about him, for sorry for him. He's like some dirty, battled doll that I was given and that I came to feel particularly attached to, peculiarly, peculiarly attached to." <laughs> what did important. I say? Particularly uh, <laughs> important distinction. So, yeah, no, no, <laughs> should get those t- two words correct. Very different reading there. And uh, and when Fines was in costume, he looked so much like Goff that when Mila Pfefferberg met him on set, one of the Shinner spies, she yeah. trembled with fear. Uh, the character of Isaac Stern, as mentioned in your um, synopsis, played by Ben Kingsley. He's very much a composite figure of uh, the real Stern, uh, the factory manager, Abra- Abraham Bankier, and Goff's personal secretary, Mitek Pemper, who was the man who actually typed the list itself. Mm. Uh, thousands of extras were hired during filming with Spielberg casting Israeli and Polish actors, specifically for their Eastern European appearance. Many of the German actors themselves were reluctant to don the SS uniform, as I'm sure you would be, mm. but some of them later thanked Spielberg as they found it a cathartic experience. Principal photography on the film began on March 1st, 1993, in Krakow, Poland, with a planned schedule of 75 days. A schedule, it in fact, came in under, which is kind of mad. Wow. He must have been exhausted. <laughs> he was editing. He was, yeah. Curiosity he was part. Over what is, from what I can gather, the rudimentary version of, like, mm. working on Zoom working on something over oh, Zoom yeah, on the yeah. computer. So he did it by... about this briefly in, mm, with Jack and the... Did it via an internet feed in yeah. Krakow, which is... Christ. 1993. Yeah. March 1993. Yeah. He had that tech, man. <laughs> um, the, cro- the crew shot at near... Shot at or as close to the actual locations as they could. Um, for the, though the Plazal camp itself had to be reconstructed in a nearby abandoned quarry as that skyline now is filled mm. with modern high-rises. Interior shots of uh, Schindler's enamelware factory in Krakow were filmed at a similar factory in Olkers, while interior shots and scenes on the factory stairs were filmed at the actual factory itself, which is still standing and is has now been dedicated into an Oscar Schindler Museum. Um, and they received right permission from the Polish authorities to film on the grounds of Auschwitz. Oh my Birkenau. god. State Museum, but objections to filming within there were objections to filming within the actual camp. Right. So they could go right. to the State Museum but not the actual death camp. And these objections were largely filed by the World Jewish Congress. So to avoid actually shooting in a death camp, the film con- the film crew constructed a replica of a portion of the camp just outside of the actual entrance to Birkenau. Um, during uh, production, there were some anti-Semitic incidents. This one, I found, like, it baffled me that someone would do this. But yeah, 
a woman who encountered fines in his Nazi uniform came up to him and told him the Germans were charming people. They didn't kill anybody who didn't deserve it. Imagine doing that in the early 90s around a film crew. It's crazy. And they were often played with anti-Semitic symbols being scrawled on billboards near shooting locations, while Kingsley himself nearly entered a brawl with an elderly German-speaking businessman who insulted an Israeli actor, uh, Michael Schneider. So again, these cases happening on that just, I think, really drive home the point that Spielberg is making behind the drive of... Yeah, documenting this and making it... uh... Uh, Nonetheless, Spielberg said that at Passover, during during shooting, all the German actors showed up, put on yarmulkes and opened up Haggadahs and the Israelis actors moved right next to them and explained everything to them, creating as close to a familial relationship as they could within the context of this. Yeah. Um, but for Spielberg himself, um, this was a shoot that was quite emotionally testing and draining, saying, I, the, the filmmaker saying, I was hit in the face with my personal life, my upbringing, my Jewishness. The stories my grandparents told me about the Shur and, and all Jewish life came pouring back into my heart. I cried all the time. It be such a, a double-edged sword for him. Yeah. He was surprised, though, to say that he did not cry while visiting Auschwitz, instead finding himself filled with outrage. Um, he was also one of the many crew members who could not force themselves to watch during the shooting scene of where... Of, couldn't force himself to watch during the shooting of the scene where aging Jews are forced to run naked while being selected by Nazi doctors to go to Auschwitz. Again, one of the many sequences in this film that really Mm. drives into the kind of realism that he's striving for. Uh, With Spielberg commenting himself that he felt more like a reporter than a filmmaker, setting up scenes and then watching events unfold, almost as as if he was witnessing rather than recreating. Uh, To kind of alleviate the his the well the the tone of the set and what have you uh he rented a house with uh, his wife kate capsule and their five children that he could go back to in the suburbs of krakow to kind of have a space that was removed and could recollect and spend some time with his family and also robin williams were calling up would call him up every evening to yeah. do comedy bits i love hearing that i absolutely yeah. love hearing that that's the best thing to come out of hook i think <laughs> that friendship yeah um it was also during these kind of moments of um feeling like a reporter and trying to drive home the realism that gave spielberg the idea halfway through the shoot to conceive the epilogue where the survivors pay their respects at Schindler's grave which did prove to be a bit of a last minute scramble for producers to be able to go out and find as many as they could mm-hmm. and then you have that epilogue sequence with the actors who played them escorting yeah. the survivors down um, should be noted that Spielberg decided not to plan this film with storyboards unlike well, he'd done pretty much every other film he'd made beforehand uh, and deciding to shoot the film largely with hand, well 40% with handheld cameras and avoiding steady cams and crane shots which he had come to rely upon as a filmmaker and kind of considered his safety net in terms of kind of mimicking the classical style of his heroes like Cecil B. DeMille and David Lean. Um, and what is quite a one of the big significant collaborations that is forged here with Schindler's List is this is the first film that Spielberg makes with Polish cinematographer 
Janusz Kaminski. And oh, yes. he has not made a film without Kaminski since. One of my favorite collaborations yeah, absolutely. in Hollywood history. I, think. Uh, I love it. Kaminsky himself compared the style of shooting to German Expressionism and Italian neorealism, believing that the black and white gave the impression of timeless, timelessness to the film, so the audience would not have a sense of when it was made. Universal chairman, though, Tom Pollock, did ask him to shoot the film on a color negative in order for them to be able to put color VHS copies of the film out um, when it came to home entertainment, but Spielberg refused, stating he didn't want to accidentally beautify events. Which is something we can talk about with the uh, a pin so, in that because we broached yeah. that with Michael, mm. but I want to sort of talk more about it. Um, in terms of other collaborators that uh, return for this film, uh, John Williams, of course, is back on scoring duties. Um, he edits the, this film with Michael Kahn, who uh, pretty much mo- most of Spielberg's movies are, in, at least in part, edited by Michael Kahn. Um, when Williams was shown a rough cut of the film, the, the composer was so amazed and felt it would be too challenging telling Spielberg, you need a better composer than I am for this. With Spielberg responding, I know, but they're all dead. Eitzak <laughs> 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 uh, Perlman performs a, a violin solo in, in the film, whilst um, the clarinet solos heard in the film are by Kelsmer Virtuoso Flora Feldman. Um, Coming in uh, under budget and under schedule, the film made its release date for um, December 15th, 1993, where it began its limited theatrical run in the United States before expanding over the awards season and into um, the first... It played pretty much mm. cinemas until, I, until about May of 1994 and has subsequently been released numerous times, most recently for its 25th anniversary. In 1998. Eight. Eight. <laughs> no, it's Wait, what? 25th anniversary? Yeah, 2018. 2018. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Got> <laughs> took us a while. Numbers. <laughs> Here's some more numbers for you. Um, despite the fact that execs were nervous about uh, a Holocaust film not um, resonating with audiences in terms of box office potential, the film um, did incredibly well financially, earning $96.1 million in the U.S., and 321.2 million worldwide. Uh, it would go on to be nominated for 12 Oscars, um, winning seven of them, including for Kaminsky, uh, John Williams, and of course, Best Picture and Best Director for Spielberg. Reactions to the film as well were largely um, universal in their acclaim. Mm-hmm. Um, with such filmmakers who circled the project as Billy Wilder, calling it absolute perfection, whilst Polanski said he could not have done as good a job as Spielberg as he couldn't have been as objective as he was. Uh, But there were some voices on the other side who weren't so keen with what Spielberg had put to screen with filmmaker Michael Haneke criticising the sequence in which Schindler's women were accidentally sent off to Auschwitz and herded into showers, with Haneke saying, you can only do something like that with a naive audience like the United States. Mm -hmm. It's not an appropriate use of form. Turn your WhatsApp off. I didn't know it was on. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Claiming it was not an appropriate use of form. Yeah. Spielberg meant well, but it was dumb. While Cloud Landsman, the director of the nine-hour Holocaust documentary Shoah, called Schindler's List, a kitschy melodrama mm. and a defamation of historical truth. 
believing that i sincerely thought that there was a time for sure and a time after sure and that after sure certain things could no longer be done spielberg with them anyway um like I say, nonetheless, the film has gone on to be widely regarded as an important text when it comes to depicting the show in cinema and led to Spielberg founding the USC Shur Foundation in 1994, which works to preserve the testimonies of Holocaust survivors and witnesses, with the foundation expanding recently in 2018 to include testimonies from victims of anti-Semitism and other, form- other modern genocide victims across the globe. Um, I, I think that's quite a nice point to build into to introduce our discussion with Michael on yeah. the film as we get into some of this lasting legacy of Schindler's List and the inherent difficulty of approaching mm. a topic mm-hmm. like this for uh, a worldwide audience. So uh, let's get into it, shall we? Once the war ends, forget it. But for now, it's great. You can make a fortune, don't you think? I think most people right now have other priorities. Like what? I'm sure you'll do just fine once you get the contracts. In fact, the worse things get, the better you'll do. Oh, I can get the signatures I need. That's the easy part. Finding the money to buy the company. (laughs) That's all. You don't have any money. Not that kind of money. You know anybody? Jews, yeah, investors. You must have contacts in the Jewish business community working here. What community? Jews can no longer own businesses. That's why this one's in receivership. Ah, but they wouldn't own it. I'd own it. I'd pay them back in product. Pots and pans. Pots and pans. Something they can use. Something they can feel on their hands. They can trade it on the black market. Do whatever they want. Everybody's happy. If you want, you could run the company for me. Let me understand. They'd put up all the money. I do all the work. What if you don't mind my asking what you do? I'd make sure it's known the company's in business. I'd see that it had a certain panache. That's what I'm good at. Not the work. Not the work. The presentation. Dear listeners, please join us as we welcome Chief Executive of UK Jewish Film, Michael Efferton, to the podcast. Michael, welcome to Ramblin, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we, we very much appreciate you giving us your time, as we you know you're a very busy man. But for, for our listeners who may not know what uh, UK Jewish Film is and what it is that you and the team do there, uh, could you give us a little background on who you guys are and what it is that you do? Yeah, we're we're the organisation that brings you films about Jewish life and culture and experience from around the world. So we're the only we're the only film festival, as it were, that 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 does this. And uh, you know, these days there's an incredible amount of, of films out there that uh, that explore Jewish life, and that, that's what we're there for. So um, we have our festival in in November, and the rest of the year we have special screenings, uh, previews, run an on-demand platform, that kind of thing. Yeah, awesome. And how long have you been there yourself? I first got involved um, 15 years ago. I, I was actually in the music business at the time. It was a long time ago. Uh, and I just, you know, I, I just fell in love with, 
with the work that we do. It's 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 incredible. The films that you get to see are really special, and mm. a lot of them are films that you would not otherwise see mm. here in the UK, and that feels like quite quite a privilege because you're sort of un- discovering secrets, as it were, yeah. um, in film, and you're bringing them to audiences, and that's that's a really lovely thing to be able to do. Must be a wonderful feeling. And you have the this year's festival coming up, uh, 10th of November this year, I believe it kicks off. Um, how are you feeling about that one? Very excited. Some trepidation. We're in, in the middle of um, closing our festival programme at the moment. Uh, I, I think it's a really strong year. I wasn't sure if there'd be uh, the quality of films out there, you know, with, what, with the pandemic and everything. I, I just wasn't sure. But um, I'd say... This, the films are, are brilliant this year. The feature films particularly are really, really strong. Um, so I feel we've got a really interesting, diverse, exciting, moving, great festival in store for audiences. As you say, 10th of November running through to the 20th in cinemas. And then we've got an online sort of window running from the 21st to the 27th of November. Excellent. I'll make sure that we include details in the episode Absolutely, description yeah. so listeners can can <laughs> seek those out. On the on the topic of film, which is very much what we're uh, about here at Ramblin, um, we wondered what what your foundational film moments are, and and particularly if there was any um, any connection from an early age to the maestro, the reason that Andy and I are both here, Mr. Steven Spielberg. You know, for me, um, I came in a way, my my entry point to films a bit unusual. I'm a musician. Uh, it's my background, a, a cellist and a conductor. And so I became really interested in um, musical scores for films, um, musical sound design, mus- the musical world of films. And that for me is always a really, it's a little bit obscure, I know, but it's for me, it's a really interesting point. I get really annoyed when when film directors decide not to use music at all <laughs> which happens more and more these days um, and of course there may well be good art, good artistic reasons for that but um, it's not for me for me music is is part of that subconscious narrative emotional uh, narrative of the film um, uh, and so yeah that 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 always really struck me about films I think those, those have been those kind of musical moments have, have really stood out and, and, and those have been my key film moments from a young age. Mm-hmm. Was, is there any score in particular that spoke to you uh, as, a young, as a young lad? Well, um, oh, uh, good question. You know, so, so many, but I remember, I mean, you know, this is going back a while, but, you know, I remember the Kislovsky um, films, you know, the great Polish director. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, his, uh, the score, the, the the composer he worked with, and his name is Binyu Preisner, probably pronounced that really badly, he's a Polish composer. But <laughs> that is a, an amazing example of a film director and a composer working in tandem together from the start of the project. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if that's true, but for me, it's, it appears obvious that this that this is a, um, a duet from the start of the project and the music is integral to the emotional direction of the project. Without the music, this would not be these, for example, the Three Colours films of Kislovsky yeah. wouldn't be yeah. the great films that they are. In fact, all of those Kislovsky films, The Double Life of Belnique, uh, they owe a lot to, the, to that um, musical uh, uh, 
creative uh, partnership that, that the, the, the director had with the composer. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting you mention uh, very symbiotic director, composer combinations. Andrew, can you think of any other <laughs> prominent examples? I'm struggling. I'm, I'm really struggling. <laughs> yeah. What was that kind of intro to you for like, I was it John Williams that kind of introduced you into the movies of Steven Spielberg, having this love for uh, film scores and in particular? Well, I mean, it's a good point because what, what, where would where would Schindler's List be without yeah. the uh, John Williams score? It's not just the John Williams score, but I should say in um, in Schindler's List because there he also uses um, a number of uh, Yiddish uh, songs. There's children singing, you know, very well known well known Yiddish sort of uh, uh, choruses. So, uh, but yes, of course, we we can't forget um how brilliant that that john williams score is and how wonderfully performed it is by yitzhak perlman and uh, the other mm-hmm. the other artists involved i think um uh that's that's astonishing um it brings so much to the film i think there's a, a great deal of heart and sincerity in that music it it, it you could say it's schmaltzy but i say it's not it's actually it's it's very it's deep and it's it is emotional and it's performed with integrity absolutely no fully agree yeah it was my first clarinet solo when i was was growing up i always forget you play the clarinet i wonder if one day you can (laughs) grace the listeners uh. (laughs) look i look forward to that yeah i'll tag it on the end of the episode <laughs> it's been recorded now it's it's in posterity forever so you have to honor those words Andrew. <laughs> now in terms of schindler's list itself michael can you remember a point of um seeing it for the first time and whether it kind of played on your idea of what a steven spielberg film is and was um is it is there a point that you can remember uh meeting this film for the first time yeah, I mean, com- totally. Uh, I think it was a 1994 release. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, I, was at, I was at university and I, I just uh, sneaked off to, to watch it by myself um, one afternoon <laughs> at the Phoenix uh, Cinema in Oxford. Um, and uh, I, I didn't really come <laughs> very well prepared. Probably the, 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 the you know, the, uh, the, the Steven Spielberg film I'd seen before was probably E.T. Uh, so I, I, I knew what it was about, but I, I wasn't prepared for how uh, overwhelming and how powerful it was going to be. So I, I really was in shock by the end of the film. Uh, so I, I remember, yeah, I remember seeing it really well. I know it was a long time ago, but it's it's one of the, it's it's certainly a formative cinema memory for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just it's um, you know it, it it to me it's it was clear that it was it was a masterpiece. And um, you know you 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 got to remember you got to also see it in its in its context its t- the time it was made. You know there there hadn't really been anything that, that, that had the potential to reach a, a mass market um, that was about the, uh, uh, the Holocaust. 
um, there had been some important uh, art house films, of course. And of course there had been um, the uh, documentary Shoah by Claude Lanzmann, which is extremely important. But there hadn't been anything like this where, where a, a showman like Steven Spielberg had brought all his considerable skills and talent uh, and passion to bear on, on a, a very, very tricky subject, which most directors would think better to get involved in. Uh, so he was doing something very brave. I don't think that the studios were too keen on this project. It, you know, what, as soon as you mention Holocaust, they, 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 they look, you know, they feel uncomfortable and, yeah. and there's no money to be made you know, on that subject. Um, and of course, Steven Spielberg wanted to do it in black and white. What a terrible idea. They were all <laughs> up in arms. You can't possibly do that. How are we going to sell videos? in black and white, no one will buy, no one will buy the videos. Um, so, it, I, you know, you can't, we, we, you can't just say it's Steven Spielberg, you know, he, it was easy, it wasn't an easy project to do. No one wanted him to do this project. No one wanted him to do it in black and white. No one wanted to pay for him and God knows how many people to go off to Poland and film this impossible film. Uh, yeah. So I think, he, I think he was brave. Certainly was. And I think thinking about this in an Amblin context, Andy, we know he's, he's come off a, a, a difficult run, Jurassic Park aside, which came out the same year, which is a remarkable thought when you compare the two films side by side, um, tonally and aesthetically and everything else. But it was, you realise what a risk it was in terms of his standing. He hadn't had mm-hmm. that huge smash, again, Jurassic Park aside. It was, uh, we call them the fallow years uh, in terms of his <laughs> output in this time. It's a huge, uh, a huge comeback for him. Mm. It's weird to think there's an alternative universe out there where Martin Scorsese made this. I find it hard to picture a Martin Scorsese Schindler's List, whether that's because of just how indelible um, the work that Spielberg's done in the finished article. It's I, I don't know. It's very hard to picture that kind of... And I think it's right that they kind of changed hands. Um, but uh, what about the kind of tale of Oscar Schindler itself? Did, did you have any kind of knowledge of this man or this kind of story? Or is this very much something that seeing the film enlightened you to this element of? Yeah, I, 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 it's a good question, uh, Andy. I, 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 I had been given the book. Mm. I now can't quite remember if I'd actually read it before I saw the film, but I had <laughs> been given this book. Uh, so I, but I, yeah, I'm a little bit hazy about the timeline, but yes, it's, you know, he picked... Look, he picked a story that people would relate to. Um, it's, uh, you know, and, and uh, the, the point of view, the, 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 the overall point of view in this film is, is Oscar Schindler. He's not Jewish. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a bit of a scoundrel. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not always that nice. He's, but yet, you know, in, played by Liam Neeson, you know, he's terribly likable, of course, in, in Schindler's List. And it's his journey of transformation um, transform ethical transformation transformation that we see um you know uh, I, I i think if it hadn't been spielberg if it, i think if it was a non if it had been a non jewish director yeah. taking this on i think i would have some res- i would have my reservations mm-hmm. about this because you know it's it's a, it's, a, it's another film where a, you know ostensibly a jewish film but actually 
hey, the, the, the hero, the central figure is not Jewish. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, ha had that been a film about black slavery, for example, and you decide to make your central hero the saintly white man on journey of transformation, there'd be a few questions to answer for. for. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and I think that the same applies here. And, and in a way, the UK Jewish Film Festival partly exists to try to allow yeah. Jewish people to actually be at the center of their own mm -hmm. stories. And so that we can see Jewish people on, on film and on camera, hopefully not as just secondary characters to whom, which things are done to, but people who, who are, who, who, who are incredibly diverse and who are at the center of, of the action and have, are the, are the protagonists and have their own story. So that, that's partly why it's important the Jewish Film Festival exists. But nevertheless, I think in Steven Spielberg's hands, he, he did hand, you know, he handled this story as well as he could possibly have done. Mm -hmm. uh, and his intentions were great. Mm. And he took it incredibly seriously. Uh, and I don't know how, and the film is an absolute feat to organize. I don't know how he did it. Mm. Uh, but it looks extraordinary and the cinematography is stunning. It's so so beautiful. Every composition. I mean, that yeah. is that is that is masterpiece cinema cinematography. The, the, the look of the film before you get into the emotional content. But that that look is is wonderful. He was he was right to do it in black and white. Some of those images. The most famous one, obviously, is the little girl. I think in the red coat, uh, you see her as Shinna looks down from the hilltop, traversing through the city, trying to find a place to hide. And then there's the that wrenching reappearance of the coat later on, which is just chilling to contemplate even with, with distance. Then you have the motif of, of snow throughout the film and the way that falls on the, the town and, and you know what it, it proves to be. There are some real moments of visual splendor in the film, but I, I wonder to, to play devil's advocate for a second, uh, in terms of depicting something like this, I wonder about the, I wonder about the morality of... Because he's he's such a craftsman, and he, he can't help but make his films uh, engaging on an entertainment level. Uh, I do wonder about the some, perhaps cross purposes in dealing with something as as horrific as the Holocaust, but bringing that craftsman's uh, and uh, you know the, the the great showman bent to it. Is that way off mark to to suggest that this is again purely playing devil's advocate? I'm I'm just curious about that as a. I think you've notion. you've touched you know you've touched on a really imp important topic, and I, I'm sure it's one that that Steven Spielberg um, has considered very deeply himself, um, particularly since the film. You know, when you're you know you're, you're you're putting essentially you're trying to put Holocaust on film in a fictional retelling. Um, it, it, it's such such a major trauma of, of of the 20th century and really of European history in the last thousand years that it's incredibly important to, to be factual about this. Um, you know, we, we even now we you know there's an incredible amount of Holocaust denial going on mm. uh, and anti-Semitism is on the rise. So there is just that there is that nagging worry that. You know, you have these great intentions of, of, of reaching the bigger audience by trying to tell a story about the Holocaust, but yet you are 
you are effectively recreating something in inspired by true stories, but it's a fictional retelling. And do you start to dabble in that area of creating that a doubt or 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 you know where there, where there is such a need for factual accuracy it does it help us mm. um to, to 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 do fictional retelling so i think I, I don't know the answer to that i think on balance it was really important but i think it does one of the reasons that steven spielberg was so keen to fund and, and to set up the Shoah Foundation after the release of, yeah. um, um, of the film was that he was aware of that danger and was aware that actually testimony needed to be told in a very, very truthful and direct way from the witnesses who were still around in 1994. Most mm. A lot of them are dead now. And so he set up the um, USC Shoah Foundation and through that foundation, there are um, more than 50,000 testimonies from Holocaust survivors. And I think if you hear Steven Spielberg talk, you will hear him talk very, very quickly about that foundation because he, mm. he views it personally as, as probably more important than the film. And perhaps, and I'm, this is just me, uh, uh, you know, perhaps there is some nagging worry about that blurring of of of, 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 of narrative retelling and and, and uh, documentary, yeah, mm -hmm. difficult it, area. Very certainly is. Yeah, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the matter because it's uh, it's a constant tension in this kind of yeah filmmaking. It, it, it greeted it upon its release, and like I said, most of the articles and the discussions around its day still continue down that vein. Um, but I, I also think of it in terms of the kind of the, the other side of the reception, because me and Joshua were speaking a little bit before the call on how this was one of one of one of the kind of films or at least clips from that was used as a tool in when we were at secondary school in history lesson to kind of to bring up this uh, this incredibly large topic of the greatest greatest cr like crime and atrocity of the of human history and how how do you feel as as the film as an educational tool i guess more on the kind of positive side on on that kind of tension and how the style of it between this kind of like almost david lean-esque um classical film mixed in with the kind of 40 percent handheld camera uh, i think it's particularly interesting that 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 kind of handheld moments come in the part where oscar schindler isn't really there so much it's in these moments of the um liquidation of the ghetto and in these moments where you are more in the forced labor camps how how do you view it as a kind of tool for education and particularly to, to towards younger viewers like myself and josh at secondary school when we were quite still quite young and learning about this for the first time uh, look we do at uk jewish film we do a lot of education work in schools um using film I've got to say that we, we, we wouldn't um, use Schindler's List mm. these days. Abs absolutely not. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's, it's of its time. It, it's too far. It's too, it, as an educational tool in 2022, it's, it, it will, it's too melodramatic. It uses English people 
it uses you know English language with funny accents. <laughs> yeah. um, it's it's <clears throat> too far. It's too far from the topic. We do use some fiction in our education, um, and this could. I'm not saying it, it, it occasionally or films like this occasionally play a small part, clips of it, but I think it, they are very. It's very important that it's contextualized, and mm -hmm. we do also use uh, testimony as well. So I, I think I think probably part of, part of the answer is is kind of how you present it and what context you put it in and what other material you're using. I just think it needs to be, yeah, as I said, I'm a big fan of this film and he did, I, I, you know, on balance, I think this was, this was a great good that Steven Spielberg did, but it is of its time. And I, I think in, as an educational tool, it's, it's, it does need to be treated with, with, with some care. Mm. Um, but as a sort of overall outreach to audiences more generally, it still has a role um a role to play which i think is in, is, is is significant certainly yeah i suppose on that note as well um what are the are there any specific texts or films that you would recommend to uh educate audiences on the topic or um wider issues yeah i mean we, we actually use quite a lot of short films these days mm. there's some <laughs> brilliant short films and just sometimes it, you can just capture specific themes, specific topics for discussion so that you, you engage uh, younger people. Uh, and so we tend to do that. We use all, all kinds of different, really different films each year. But we do sometimes take, for discussion purposes, we, might, we will take a film like Schindler's List or something like A Boy in the Striped Pajamas, which I have many problems with. Mm. But it is, um, yeah. these are problems that can be discussed openly with young people. Um, in a context, as long as there's other material, you know, uh, uh, as well. So I don't have one overall, yeah. you know, recommendation. You know, Son of Saul was, was a, is a fantastic yeah. attempt to revisit narrative filmmaking in relation to the Holocaust. And it's worth looking at a bit of that in, in context. Um, it's, you know, he, he tried to throw away everything that Schindler's List brought it all the tropes that Schindler's List introduced and people did worse and worse over the years since. <laughs> um, um, uh, you know, in, in uh, the first time director of Son of Saul, very brilliant Hungarian director, threw them all away and did something completely different, very immersive, but a very, very different approach. Um, that's worth looking at as well, I'd yeah. say, Son of Saul. Second that for sure. Uh, you'll be, you'll be, uh, uh, sorry to tell you that the boy in the striped dramas was also something that our school took us to when we yeah. were in secondary school and even at the time we were like why <laughs> so, I, I was i briefly i briefly worked in a school after i graduated university i was a, a cover teacher in the english department and we uh we studied the book i had to teach the book and we then as a, a, a quote-unquote treat to the kids at the end of term would show them the film in chapters throughout the lessons and uh, oh boy that was um mm. Certainly, much to discuss, like you say, uh, but yeah, unsure as to how really problematic certainly is. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, talk about blurring lines between fiction and, and, and fact. Yeah, yeah, and it's not, you know, I mean, the Jewish people who appear in that film, I mean, they're really just in passing, they're just mm -hmm. uh, entitled, you know, they're, they're just sort of 
I suppose they're just sort of symbolic, really, rather than it's, it's, not, it's not a Jewish film at all. Mm. Infuriating work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think another question I kind of want to come back with Schindler's is again on this kind of idea of the maybe the, the broader elements of it that particularly haven't, um, that may not make it that um, appealing to contemporary audiences these days these days i was looking back kind of around the 25th anniversary and of course next year will be the 30th anniversary and there was um you know a remaster and a blu-ray put out and spielberg again kind of touching upon the same reasons why he chose to make the film when he did in the early 90s from these kind of hearing and rise in the news of kind of anti-semitism and holocaust denial and how unfortunately these things do just seem to circulate and something that like just keeps circulating back for god knows why and it made me think a bit about particularly watching this film again where it does foreground the kind of the good and the evil so blatantly and how much there's almost almost more of a need for like those kind of depictions particularly of fascism uh today uh what your kind of thoughts on the kind of again that that broader idea of good and evil in the film i mean uh, i i just uh, i w- i don't i mean i i i really don't have um criticisms of 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 this work in that kind of way i, I look i mean holocaust survivors were generally i just generally relieved that someone goes to the trouble of of doing some such a major such a work like mm. this they were generally very pleased with it and um, you know for me as the um you know a great grandson of of um uh, m- many people who died in the holocaust uh my grandparents were refugees and came to england in in 1940 you know i i, I do of course there are there are flaws in this and in, in the film but you know I do think that overall, I'd, I'd rather he had he, he made it, um, despite all the the arguments that people will inevitably mm. throw at it. There was nothing, you know, there was so little else being done at that time. Um, and, and yes, I, you know, I have I have my own criticisms. I, I would I would like to see, as I said. Jewish people at the center of their of their stories but this was a way in and it was and, and Steven Spielberg was smart enough to know that that the the wider audiences would relate to this character um, and uh, so I think you know as someone who is you know directly uh, descended from from this sort of you know the trauma of the Holocaust in, in a quite a quite a real way um i i I am glad it was i'm glad it's i'm glad it was made and i think he did you know he did as we say as we jews say he did a mitzvah he did a good deed (laughs) that's good to hear that's good to hear absolutely and i i think that particularly with that 30th anniversary coming up as well i imagine even more generations will yeah i mean i'm really glad you reminded me of that because yeah. i hadn't actually i hadn't realized <laughs> so, i mean uh, i've got to say i mean i we have never shown schindler's list at the uk jewish film festival mm-hmm. never been shown um so it's not actually a film that jewish people 
tend to pick up and watch. Um, that's pro probably contrary to what people imagine. I, I don't know anyone who's watched Schindler's List recently who's Jewish uh, because it scares them. Mm -hmm. They're scared of seeing it. Um, it's so traumatic to see. But next year, I think you're right. It's time. It's time for us to to show it, and and probably you've inspired me that we we act, we could show it, and we need to have a discussion like yeah. this about this as well. <laughs> Although it's a long film. Yeah. <laughs> Intermission in between as well. It's like, what are you thinking so far? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. Thank you for <laughs> formatting our events. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you very much, Michael. I think that's a, a really lovely point to kind of uh, wrap up this kind of talk on the legacy of Schindler's List. Um, uh, no, thank um, you. Great to talk about it. It's been it's 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 it's, a, it's such an important film, and lovely yeah. to have the opportunity to say something. And um, before we let you go, where can uh, the good listeners find uh, UK Jewish Film and yourself to keep up with all the all the updates ahead of the festival in November? Yeah, well, check us out, please, on ukjewishfilm.org. That's where you'll find details of the festival. The programme launches on the 28th of September. It's open to everybody. You don't have to be Jewish to come to the UK Jewish Film Festival. So please come, whatever your background is, and it starts on the 10th of November. Oh, we'll, well, we look, we'll certainly yeah. be there, won't we, Andy? Yeah, we look forward to seeing you there, man. <laughs> Thanks again, Michael. Thank you. Been a real pleasure talking to you. You know, I look at you. I watch you. You're never drunk. Oh, that's that's real control. Control is power. That's power. Is that? Why they fear us? We have the fucking power to kill, that's why they fear us. They fear us because we have the power to kill arbitrarily. A man commits a crime, he should know better. We have him killed and we feel pretty good about it. Or we kill him ourselves and we feel even better. It's not power, though. That's justice. It's different than power. Power is when we have every justification to kill, and we don't. You think that's power? That's what the Emperor said. A man stole something, he's brought him before the Emperor, he throws himself down on the ground, he begs for mercy. He knows he's going to die. And the Emperor pardons him. This worthless man, he lets him go. I think you are drunk. That's power, Amon. That is power. Well, thank you ever so much again, Michael, for joining us. That was a really instructive and rewarding chat, certainly mm -hmm. for us. And uh, I, I advise... Uh, listeners to do check out UK Jewish Film and if you're in the London area check out the Jewish Film Festival which kicks off as we said on the 10th of November. I, I want to sort of I want to begin 
by talking about the ethics of, the ethics of depicting the Holocaust in film, particularly for this filmmaker to depict the Holocaust, because we both love Spielberg. We're here because of our love yeah. for Spielberg. As we say, every time we do a Spielberg film, and pretty much beyond that, and I think the thing that we always come back to with him is that he's one of the most articulate with film language directors that's ever lived. Going back to the birth of film, he is the man who just, he's fluent in film language in a way that not many others are. So there is an innate sense of showman, and again, it's something we do, I think I even phrase it like this with Michael, he's such an innate showman, such an innate craftsman. Yes. It's very, very hard for him to tone that down and to not make something uh, innately entertaining. And that is a tension. I know he spoke extensively about wanting to make this more documentary-like and he worked hard to give it a, you know, a handheld cinema verite feel to it. But there is, it's, it is ultimately such a finely crafted film that is, and let me qualify this, easy to watch not easy to watch in that it is joyous or the events depicted are, are um yeah they, they possible they shake you still they do shake but you I, but i get what you the mean film, as a piece of visual media it's so well put together that that it's very watchable mm. which i think is part of the point of it it's part it, of, i know sure. and it's, yeah it does build into an inherent tension it's part of the point and i think Similar to this is the fact that it's shot in, in English with, with what Michael calls funny accents. And I know Spielberg said about this that he thought that shooting it in Polish and German with subtitles gives the audience an out because it allows yeah. them to focus on something other than the image, which I do understand. But it also does... I mean, it's all it's all geared to work because his motivations for this were to challenge Holocaust denial. So you want to make something that is as widely appealing mm-hmm. and can be seen as, as many people as possible by as many people as possible but that does also feed into the innate tension of the film that's uh, to use the term again a double-edged sword it needs to be accessible to a wide audience for its message and the history that it documents to be <coughs> absorbed and received yeah. by it. it's like it's the whole thing with it's funny that michael haneke does critique him because he faced a similar thing with Funny Games, which he remade shot for shot in America for the intended audience. But whereas that film takes on a very confrontational academic veneer that's going to alienate the people that need to see it the most, this film is very much... It's very... It is... There is an entertainment value to it because Mm -hmm. it is so finely crafted. And it it is that question of... Which I think is what Cloud Landsman's kind of getting at mm, with his point. Yeah. Absolutely. Whether that should happen and whether it, he he didn't think it would continue to happen after, yeah, making uh, Shoah, um, which is not like nine hours long and is entirely documentary and talking heads and testimonies, yeah. from what I can gather. Um, and I agree, and it's like something that kind of Michael touches on at in the end of that discussion there, where it, it's quite it feels quite hard to be critical about Schindler's List because. Yeah it ultimately succeeds at what it wanted to do in terms of I mean, portraying it yeah. to a wider audience. And it's a similar tension we talked about with The Colour Purple, yeah. what is kind of lost. And that that's more of a case of what is lost by making that more palatable to yeah. a worldwide audience. And with Schindler's List, you are, I, I, do, I do get what you mean. It's quite difficult to navigate exactly 
what it is, but it's it's still it's powerful in the right ways, and it's yeah, and it's shocking in the right ways. There's no denying that. Yeah, yeah. and I, to kind of jump back to that point of um, that Spielberg made when met with the kind of question of can we shoot this on color negative as yeah. well, and that 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 quote that he said about like not wanting to accidentally beautify it. Yeah, this is still a very beautiful. It film, is, yeah. but not in the moments where it's it needs to be ugly and real. That mm. yeah, and I guess that's a, that kind of point of that, the forty percent handheld yeah. and the um, everything else yes. kind of around it. Because to kind of talk about more, I, I think this is particularly in terms of how it presents Oscar Schindler as it's as your hero. I want to talk about this, yeah, because um, yeah. he he is. He is framed and shot, and uh, in his introduction, like a matinee idol. It's a Hollywood movie because he's, he's even Dogel. got the key lighting. It <laughs> yeah. he, he, he looks like a forties, and it's very, it's very still. It's on, uh, you know, it's a very Spielberg intro. Yeah, it's done. It's like it's like Indiana Jones, isn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Set, he's put, putting his this perfectly face groomed on man, and then out. you have this very shocking punctuation of the Nazis emblem that yeah. he puts on his lapel. And yeah, then he goes out to schmooze mm. pretty much, and it's something that's like. Uh, Thomas Kennedy's book also goes into Schindler as a young man living in Czechoslovakia and like from early on having this kind of uh, great skill at being able to realize how to talk to people to make them think that you are that you're kind of playing to what they want from you rather than the other way around if that makes sense so to make it seem like you're not the one who to make it seem like they're um better than you and you are uh inferior to them despite the fact that you're actually playing them for mm-hmm. your own needs and this even the idea of a, a a capitalist within the nazi party is an interesting like contradiction in and of itself this yeah. is a man who as the film film and the book shows goes into this initially not to um find this kind of great purpose that he does it's to it's very selfish purposes it's totally. to it's to make money it's to make his fortune it, he's he's found a way to exploit the war for himself Absolutely. to make his fortune and well, there's that scene in the film where you have that tension of the um um the jewish people being moved into the ghetto mm. and he gets one of the old apartments in the yeah and the film cuts back and forth from schindler lying on the bed going um uh what could be better and then cuts back to uh the original owners of that apartment and said it could be worse yeah. and then he's like please tell me how it could be worse yeah. which is quite a ominous ring for what does yeah. eventually happen to these people and uh later in the liquidation but again it's and then more people come into the room that they're yeah squatting to make it even worse cause yeah drive home they're changing status and again that and then the film creates this because I would say that kind of approach to Schindler, even on an aesthetic level, doesn't really leave, even when he gets close to mm. some of the more horrific mom- moments, like even the liquidation of the of the ghetto. When you're Obviously, within it, yeah. it's very, very intense and all handheld and what have you. But yeah. it's when... Schindler himself is still quite removed. It, yes, it is quite a big turning point for him, but and you have the classic image of the girl in the red yeah. coat, but it's still 
the way he's kind of shot and lit still never quite emerges out from yeah. this kind of aesthetic, even at the end. Well, he's he's in that moment, he's removed, he's literally above it. Yeah. He, he's no re- he has no direct bearing on him, there's no reason to get involved. And I think the film just wants, it tries to show how piece by piece that's almost eroded and, and he's drawn into it. But like visually, you're right, it doesn't, it does kind of maintain that mm. distinction. And maybe ultimately the Jewish characters are absorbed into the more classical Hollywood view other than vice versa. In fact, I think that's, that is true. Mm. Ultimately, the, the Jewish workers join the film that Schindler is in as opposed to him joining the film that they're in. Yeah. And mm. uh, we can talk about how the film concludes shortly. But I do think it is interesting, that initial distinction between the portrayal of Schindler as a classic Hollywood matinee, I've already yeah. said, and the documentary uh, realism that's stri- stri- striven for, he strives for in the, the ghetto scenes and yeah. the concentration camp scenes. And it reminded me, I mean, this is a bit of a tacky comparison, but it reminded me a little bit of the distinction in violence in Django Unchained, where you have the really gruesome, unpleasant, like really hard to watch violence that is violence towards the slaves. And then you have the cartoony squibs that is Django's violence yeah, towards the, the plantation owners. Yeah. And it's a similar distinction in this. It's a similar kind of line drawing between something like there's moments Certainly much when, more subtle. But. Yeah. It's, 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 this is like a, a much, 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 much better film than Django and Changes. But it, it, it signposts what Spielberg wants you to feel at those moments. When it's the handheld stuff, he wants you to be almost unable to watch it. And then when it's the Hollywood stuff, he, he wants to more directly make you feel certain things. Yeah. I mean, Ultimately, at the close of the film, I think it is to the film's detriment that he lapses into that. But I think when you know when it works, it works mm-hmm. like more than you know most yeah films. <laughs> uh, and it's then that's again it's another element that makes Eamon Goff's portrayal in this mm. so interesting because he's someone who's in technically in both worlds, and Oscar has to kind of go in and it, this is when like one of the many individuals he met during this time that would have really tested that charisma and that mm. um way he plays people because even like the again going back to the opening the way you're kind of introduced to schindler the way he's like setting up his, his means of getting the factory and getting the right contracts it feels like like a con man movie almost yeah it's like putting all these care packages slick. there's together. a lot of comedy montages in that open with the, the montage with the secretaries that he's yeah. testing them out then I think that all really changes once the um, uh, labor camp and yeah. Goff come Goff come in into it, and while the film does try to play on that kind of um, the mirror image of them both, of it's pretty brazen the, in establishing yeah, that. Yeah, it li- it's literally cutting between side two men side in the mirror shave and shave. It's in it, it, it's it, it's such a weird approach to kind of putting him forward as like because i see some people go like he's one of the great film villains i'm like but hang on on. i don't know if that's really yeah he does he does terrible things throughout this film did even worse things in Mm. real life and i i do love the way the kind of story and in the book and in the film of how it's kind of it physically changes this man how all the all his evil doings and how much yeah uh, horrific actions he commits he 
he bloats, he drinks, he's fu- and it, this all just feeds into this kind of violent um, personality that he, that was clearly already there, but is given the the means and the and the permission to go yeah. out and run wild as it does. Like I think there's even this tension between the fact that these are two men that have managed to escape fighting on the yeah. front line and are using that um, situation of, uh, uh, both to avoid that and kind of make themselves useful elsewhere. Yeah, but in entirely different. Well, they're both they're both um, exploiters, approaches. both yeah. of the situation and of the people around him. Because Schindler does begin off the story, and this is why he's such a fascinating. This is what I talked to Spielberg to him, like you said, and this is why he's a more complicated and thorny character than I think the film ultimately allows him to be. And mm. I think it's in the moments when it's Schindler and Goth together, first circling each other and trying to make this, this whatever this relationship is, work, that the film is at its best. Yeah. And I, I do think that there's something, I think this is what really, this is how Spielberg kind of gets across what ultimately does push Schindler to have his change of heart. Mm. And it's really smart the way he does it. I mean, the 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 brazen way that he does position them as mirror, mirror images is not very subtle but the way that feeds into both of their characters I think is really really well done and really yeah. like much more complex than it seems and the, I guess the idea is that they're both flip sides of the same coin Schindler sees in Goth the man that he maybe could have been if he allowed him if he sort of allowed this id this violent raging id to become sort of take over if he didn't have the discipline and self-control and if he had the compassion to wither away. Mm. And uh, I guess in Schindler, Goth sees someone who ha- is, you know, everything he can't be in terms of interpersonal skills and in terms of ease of being with oneself. Yeah, and that- there's even that great scene where he's like, you never get drunk. Mm. I've never seen you drunk, despite the fact that and there's, there is a kind of, there's an admiration that Goth feels to Schindler, but also a, yeah. a jealousy that, no, like, more often than not, turns into respect because I think, particularly in the way framed in the book, Goff kind of sees Schindler as the man that he wished he had kind of yeah followed, turned into absolutely. That, that's being. exactly it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was thinking, that, and that, but again, that leads to a lot of tensions, particularly mm. within the way Schindler presents himself to other members sure. of the party, because it gets to a point where um, it becomes quite hard to hide these feelings, and that think of that scene where. He asks him to turn the fire fire hoses yeah. onto the yeah, yeah, train yeah. carriages, and um, initially all the SS guards and Amon are thinking it, thinking it's he's doing it as a kind of cruel joke. Yeah, before, but there's that weird switch when like this is this is the, this is something else. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's that discussion when when I think it's Goth or it's at least a Nazi who's around Goth who says they fear us because we have the power to kill arbitrarily. And then uh, later on, maybe in the same conversation or uh, a different one with Goth, Schindler says power is when we have every justification to kill and we don't. Yeah. And that seems to momentarily get through to Goth. And with, um, is it a little boy who can't clean his bath Yeah. to his satisfaction? He really wants to kill him because he's a petty, weak-willed man. Um, but he, he, I think he even repeats the words in the mirror to himself or something and, and yeah. tries to be compassionate, let, let the boy go. And there is that chilling shot when you see the little boy walking and the camera sort of stops following him and starts to follow um, Ben Kingsley's character instead. 
and then eventually we catch up with the boy who's yeah. now on the floor because he's been shot by this again weak-willed man mm-hmm. who cannot I think because compassion to him takes effort and he doesn't have the inclination yeah. he's, he's, he's born just creative it's not who he is and that I think that shows what you said like he wants to be Schindler he sees something in Schindler that he wishes he there's could something be. inherently in him there that yeah. can't let him but I think in 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 Evil. turn, yeah, I think in turn, Shinla sees something in Goth that repulses and terrifies him, and that is ultimately what does drive him Helps to drive be that, the yeah. man. But once the reality of the whole situation, the surrounding really sets in. Yeah, like it, it, there's, of course, the book can go into more detail about yeah, these yeah. sort of things, but there's whole whole segments of Shinla kind of worming, figuring out ways to get out of Poland and into Hungary to. Um, talk to people outside of it and say like this is what is happening and mm-hmm. he was like this is part of like some testimonies from people within occupied territories that were the first to kind of like start getting the word out of, of what exactly was happening to yeah. Jewish people in occupied territories and again it, there's it's hard to really explain in within this film which does a lot anyway to kind of express the character of Schindler and what how much of himself he does end up putting on the line within this to help save the people that yeah he, he's hired as workers um versus how much more he did do in yeah. real life as well but so i think that's part of why we do get this almost quite romantic view of him mm. within so particularly in the final third to just kind of really drive what yeah to these people um I there's one shot in particular that I that feels even even kind of the more classic Hollywood look of it within his introduction. It's in the scene towards the end um, when the war's ended, but he's got everyone on the factory floor and he's up on the balcony as this kind of again like this this Moses figure saying, "Yeah, uh, the war is over," um, and then turning to the guards and saying like. Um, leave with what human decency you have left and yeah. leave these people alone and it, there's this shot of him kind of holding his hand up um, all the workers on the floor um, the guards to one side and then he's just completely bathed in mm. this bright glow and it's just this it's Spielberg working in that kind of mode of yeah. iconography that he did do, did do and does continue to do yeah. even in his more um, quote unquote serious work. Yeah, in the in the key of ultimately, this. just can't resist. Yeah, and it, I don't want to keep saying the same thing, but again, it's a double edged sword because <laughs> I think on the one hand, I do think it betray. I I, re, I do think that giving into that does betray Schindler to a point because he's much more interesting, and I think he's much stronger and more admirable as a deeply contradictory almost hypocritical man who ultimately like that even a man as callous uh, and as, as weaselly as he is in the early part of the film even he is driven to remarkable acts of heroism in the face of what the nazis did that's much more powerful than saying this guy's a saint which yeah. is what the film ultimately does and i fair enough if there is more that he did that the film couldn't get to and therefore, this it feels representation like a is a shortcut to getting to that. But I just feel like the framing of him, yeah, the framing of him in that shot, 
and we said, no, don't clap for me, clap for yourselves. Mm. And then that, God, the, I could have gotten more of this watch, this car. Mm. It's, that is that so. That does seem to be so a scene that particularly I think, riles some people up. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't rile me up. It just makes me think this film, and it's like, it goes back to what Haneke said in, in trying to drive your audience to a conclusion. The film is so much more powerful in what Schindler represents before that. As a, as a, again, as a, as a complicated guy who did something very, very good, but someone who's deeply human, deeply flawed, and uh, but by the same token, and I, I read a review by the critic Mike D'Angelo. Do you follow him? Mm. Difficult guy has <laughs> he, 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 very hard to please, but he put it very well. He said that I think he dislikes the end maybe even more than I do, but he said that maybe the knowledge that he was going to be able to do that emboldened Spielberg to go to some real ugly yeah. places before and maybe that's the trade-off maybe we only get the previous two and a half hours if we accept the final half hour because it is remarkable what spielberg allows himself to do mm. in terms of depictions when of... you think of that the liquidation scene it's mm-hmm. incredible that it's one of the, it's one of the best things he's done oh for sure there's, there's that and again it, it does veer into being a little bit stylized but i think the stylization of it does make it all the more horrific. Yeah. It's when the Nazis, when they, they do the first wave of, of evictions and then they come back at night time to find the people that are hiding. And it's just, it's a chilling montage of like bullet holes through duvets. Yeah. And there's that like, awful... Flashing, oh, and it's a, and a it's a still sort of um, aerial view of the of the town. All is quiet and then you have these muzzle flashes in the windows and you have the, these sort of silenced sounds. It is just... It is a horror movie, and he filmed it like a horror movie. And I think in that moment, it almost needs to be. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, which is, I, I, I guess, that is contradicting what I just said about guiding the audience to a conclusion. But, but there, there's, it's not really any other way to no. do this. Is 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 there when it's dealing with something so no. horrific and so but then inhuman? Equally horrific are the moments that are much much more. Um, documentary style and much less inflected when it's just a camera observing far too many people that you can reasonably expect to see in a frame like the amount of people that you see cramped together in a frame is pretty horrific yeah like when they're on the train before they're hosed down and you, you can hear them suffocating or even when they're signing on when they're trying to show yeah. their work papers to, to get jobs at the factory it's just so many people so many people and it's terrifying mm-hmm. it's so you just think you know one and then again you, you your mind kind of boggles as yeah. how you mount that yeah, and shoot that. But I think, to, to his credit, in those moments, I, my first thought. Eventually, I did think that, but before that, I thought, imagine being in that. Imagine mm-hmm. being a person who's like, and, and that's the success of that style of filmmaking. I think that Spielberg can. He makes you think first and foremost about the visceral. Uh, it makes you think viscerally first of all. Like, oh God, you know, yeah, this is a real thing people went through mm-hmm. before you even think about how impressive it is that he pulled it off. I guess. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, I keep going back to the phrase double-edged sword, but it is. It, it's a real... He has to make certain um, conciliatory... Compromise, not compromises. Concessions. Yeah. But I think in return he is able... And it's a deal he's made with himself. He's able to, to achieve things that you would not have thought Spielberg was able to achieve before this point. Mm. And, that, and it does have such a resounding impact on mm. his career. Yeah, can't totally. make a film again for five years. He just needs to stop, take stock. Yeah, well, yeah, but they, it comes back in '97 with another the Lost World, too. Yeah, Amistad and as well. Amistad, yeah, 
And The Lost World feels like a very different work of a filmmaker. It's a guy compared to the first one is in a dark place, or it's a guy who is not able to. He's just matured. He's yeah. He's less concerned with making those kind of yeah. Particularly at that point in his career, I'd say he's probably come back a bit more to it now. A little bit more now. Yeah. But and this we're getting into perhaps it's maybe what is it. Third or fourth wave Spielberg. It's that yeah. early, <laughs> early noughties paranoid sci-fi, and that is among maybe they're not his best, best films, but it's maybe when he's the most it's interesting. Them, very to me. interesting, yeah. Uh, that, Great work yeah. from Kaminsky. Again, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it it's a necessary uh, evolutionary process that he went through, and yeah. this is by far the best of his dramatic experiments. And mm. I, I'm worried that I'm coming across as liking. I, I do think it's very close to being a masterpiece. Yeah, I don't think it quite is. It's just it's very, it's, very, it's, very it's a difficult subject to yeah. tackle, and I I do think you're never gonna, mm. no one's ever gonna make a Holocaust drama that everyone's gonna agree with because sure. yeah. the inherent tension is should you be shooting a it's film inherently about po- yeah, problematic. Yeah. That's that's always gonna be a bit of a question around anything, but mm. as they come. It's pretty. Yeah. <laughs> and like, like you say, the fact that um, that it's shown, you and I both experienced it first of all in schools, and mm. I think that shows its success at reaching that's the widest possible audience that yeah. got down to schools. We saw that at what, 14, 15? Uh, yeah, I would say that. I saw this film for the. We watched clips at school, and then I watched yeah. it in full when I was 15. Yeah. My dad had it on VHS. The double, the old double VHS. It wasn't a double. Was it? Weirdly, it, was it, was it was all on the web. <laughs> I think the, uh, one of the things I found on, on Wikipedia was that for the 97 American TV showing, mm. it was uh, broadcast unedited, unedited, and it was the first film to receive a TVM rating yeah. under the TV parental guidelines. So to be shown completely back to front with no concessions. I'm not quite sure what time it was on, but I think it was at a time when children would have been able to yeah. view it, which is why... <laughs> This Republican congressman, Tom Coburn, said that it was um, it brought television to an all-time low uh, with full frontal, nudity, full frontal nudity, violence, and profanity, crucially ignoring the context of all of those things. Yeah. Because it is a film that, should, that younger people need to see, I think. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, and it was a fair play to NBC for showing it like yeah. that. And fair play to our teachers. Because it is... I don't know you did history... GCSE and A level, yeah, yes, did. and you do return. To, you, 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 I think Nazi Germany is something that you study more than anything else. You go more and more in depth with that, yeah, sure, ostensibly to try and avoid those attitudes resurfacing again. But alas, whoever <laughs> yes. saves one life saves the world in time. So I imagine it like this is a this is a film that many have come to in a similar sort of capacity. So uh, we did put out the the feelers for mm-hmm. tweets from our listeners about this film, and we did have a good response. Um, have one here from uh, Harley at Harley Mumford on Twitter, uh, a good good podcast pal and host of Fundamentals. He uh, wrote and say an incredible cinematic masterpiece. I remember reading the book and then watching the movie just after. I felt that Spielberg did an amazing job adapting it. And he does. He does. Yeah, totally. Um, 
it's clear how much this film meant to him and the adaptation is all the better for it it is a yeah i, I guess i didn't really kind of speak to its strength as an adaptation sure whereas i did say of course that the book manages to have these moments where it does it can go more into the minutiae and the details of and give the space to every individual involved that the film just can't do mm-hmm. um it largely yeah it gets to the essence of kind of what this book focuses on both in terms of portraying the jewish experience and that um the two figures of schindler and goff so i fully mm-hmm. agree with you there harley mm, totally yeah and it's, it is one of those cases where you do feel spielberg's personal stake in it yeah bleed through and uh, it makes it emotionally strong experience uh we also had a tweet by dan kelly former guest uh our first guest in fact he was way back in the day returning guest for back to the future as well uh, and he asked us a question he said how do you guys feel the interpretation of that period slash experience plays versus other important cultural expressions such as mouse is it over spielbergian in parts uh, and does that rub it of authenticity now you've read mouse haven't you and i have I, yes i read that read at university for, I read it in response to this tweet. It's been on my list for a while. This tweet was a good excuse. And the strange thing about Mouse is that the whole thing, similarly non-fiction account, it's all sort of comic book animated versions of Art Spiegelman's dad's testimonies, right? Yeah. So it does have that literally first-person account there. And it's come up on this podcast before as yeah. well. Uh, for fear of an American tale of plagiarism. Oh, <laughs> God. God. So but, um, you, you have that framing device, right? And um, yeah. I think Michael said that his one, well, one of his bits of reticence with this film is that it's, it's following the story of a, a non-Jewish character. Yeah. Whereas Mouse completely circumvents that by uh, centering a Jewish character. And you see the whole thing from the ground level and you see you know, the, the incremental way in which mm-hmm. the, 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 the concentration camps became where they were made to be. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that does give it. It's that ground level authenticity that this film doesn't. This film's a very, very good. Uh, what's the word? Simulation, I suppose. Simulacrum yeah. of that. Whereas in Mouse, it's almost it's more again. It's, because... it's they're two very different ways of finding an sure. entrance point into yeah. telling the story. Spielberg and Kennelly have done it through the figure of Oscar Schindler to make it have that entrance point and the to make it more palatable to yeah wider audiences and in the case of mouse it's a much more kind of visual and artistic choice in terms of yeah having it be that they're anthropomorphized mice and cats and what have you to one make it seem less threatening on the surface but to be able to also have i guess a bit more freedom to create mm. horrific images because you're just again you're it, doing it with emboldening yourself to go to places that yeah, you otherwise exactly. wouldn't feel comfortable going to exactly. yeah and, um, uh... so yeah i think they i would say mouse is the more authentic mm. depiction and account um but and i think we've kind of touched similarly on um the spielbergian parts and how they yeah. might slightly dilute the authenticity of this but again it's to the point of making those concessions in order to be able to yeah. express more authenticity in the parts where it needs to really yeah. drive home. They both use their form 
to their benefits. Yeah. Both are very good expressions of lingering. And also another thing that Michael mentioned, um, mouse is very much about the lingering scars of the Holocaust and mm. how that can fundamentally the effect on the generations yeah. as well that follow after. Which is a, pro- a slight problem we have with this film that this doesn't quite have the space point. to yeah. express that. But, um, but you know, both both great works and mm-hmm. both very valuable perspectives. We also had a we had another tweet from Andy Peterson at Pose to Pose AP, who said plenty of amazing things to be said about the movie. But one thing that isn't mentioned as often is that even amid all the drama and tragedy, there are some nice moments of much needed humor, nice catharsis at times, and also that's how we humans often deal with adversity. And it's true, and it's again something Barry brought up with an American tale that you kind of deal with these mm. experiences through kind of like dark humor or just like you say, crack and joke. Like even the moment we talked about with the uh, juxtaposition of Schindler move into the flat—that's that is it's played for a, for a, quite a culture, but yeah. it's a joke. And there's also I like that it's also in the book. Um, the one where, and it is quite funny. I think I know but it's horrific. Yeah. It's but it is quite funny. It's the moment where uh, Goff has a lineup of men and boys and trying to figure out who stole the chicken. And in order to intimidate an answer out of them, he shoots one of the men in the line. A boy steps forward and he goes, "Did you steal the chicken?" He's like, "No." So, do you know who stole the chicken? He's like, "Yes." And he's like, "Who was it?" And he points to the man's just shot yeah which it, again it's dark yeah as hell, but it is quite funny <laughs> and there's also the bit which i thought you were going to say like was as well. there's there's the one guy uh that i think they, do they deem him too old to work or, or is i think he's one-armed maybe yeah. and they take him out and try and shoot him and the bullet just oh yeah the gun doesn't, yeah doesn't work. and that's played like a okay, almost an Abbott costello routine it, it's not it, 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 it finds it, these little moments of absurdity. It pushes the boundary yeah. of good taste. Yeah. yeah, but again, these are all things that yeah. are from people's yeah. accounts. Are these little weird moments of human error and absurdity. Yeah, in this and it's the banality of evil. I think. Of it. Yeah, exactly. The film's really good at just humanizing the Nazis, not in a way to make them uh, relatable, but to show these aren't monsters. These people are people like us. Yeah. That's why the Goth Schindler parallel is so mm-hmm. crucial to that. Yeah, these are people. And yeah, it's one veer off one, one sort of push off course can, can make one person become goth and one person become Schindler. It's, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for that Pete Andy. Uh, that tweet Andy. I forgot to kind of go into that weird mm. kind of tightrope of humour. Yeah. And the runner about Schindler's love for a particular kind of woman is very funny. <laughs> <laughs> There's a woman oh, who he, he sounds like he was a, he was a real pad. Yes. <laughs> Slept around a lot. Yeah. It? Uh, and the final one was from um, Qwerty Finger, Jack the Volleyball on Twitter, our friend Jack Fliss from mm-hmm. uni. And this is something that he brought my attention to. I didn't know about this. I, I, I had, to, you heard I had this? read about this, yeah. He asked us, is the old internet legend true that Spielberg submitted this film as part of a film degree? And as it goes, yeah, he did. <laughs> Finally got his degree at uh, Cal State Long Beach University in fall 2001. Uh, he submitted the film to the FEA 309 course. To fulfill the criteria of an advanced twelve-minute polished film, yeah. and I think that I think even at the time they went, yeah, all right, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can have this. <laughs> and uh, he did the whole thing, man. He, he did the whole thing in two semesters. Can you imagine, like, just going to class one day and seeing Spielberg <laughs> sat Spielberg, there yeah. in your film school class and like, huh? <laughs> I wonder if this is pre or post AI. 
might be post because yeah. I think it was about 2002. I think graduated. I got. Oh, maybe it was. Maybe it was. Maybe. Um, but yeah. Wow. Yeah, Thank that's you. a fun story. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for bringing that to our attention. <laughs> but yeah, some really nice, thoughtful. Um, uh, contributions there so thank you guys so much appreciated um so yeah i i think that pretty much brings us to a close both on mm. our episode of schindler's list and the year 1993 wow the year i was the born year of your birth <laughs> you got some doozies in your year Indeed. i got noises off which About i a year i think yeah. <laughs> yeah. i am including we're back and <laughs> yeah man we had a dangerous woman we're back a couple Jurassic of other ones Park, a far off place and finishing off with Schindler's List, a film which uh, Legacy really speaks for itself, but mm. we also spoke about it. Yeah. <laughs> and if anyone hasn't seen it and has listened to this, uh, I don't know why that would be the case, but it is on Netflix. So it it's is, the yeah. easiest. Well, I think it's coming off at the end of September. Watch. So, oh, is it? Yeah. Probably in advance of a 30th anniversary Perhaps, yeah. set, I'd imagine. Um, and to really embody the whiplash the ambulance <laughs> filmography engenders, yeah. what's next, Probably Andy, for have us? to do this at the end of this episode. In our next episode, we'll be changing the tone wildly once more, as we'll be taking a trip to the prehistoric town of Bedrock to meet everyone's favourite prehistoric family, the Flintstones. The live-action adaptation of Hanna-Barbera's cartoon from 1994, starring John Goodman, Rick Moranis, Elizabeth Perkins, Rosie O'Donnell, Carl McLaughlin, Halle Berry, and Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, If you would like to watch the film along with us and don't happen to have it on disc, or an old battered VHS, as I think I must have somewhere. <laughs> it is available to rent or buy digitally from Amazon, Apple TV, Chile, Google Play, Microsoft Store, Rakuten TV, Sky Store, and YouTube. Um, if you've got any thoughts, feelings, opinions about the Flintstones, the 1994 Flintstones, please do tweet us at Ramblin Amblin or email them to us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com. Indeed. Uh, uh, that'll be that'll be a nice goofy time that'll be a goofy time we've got some goofy ones coming up we've got some goofy so ones we appreciate that we it's been yeah. a good month since we released something but we like yeah. I say at the start we did not want to rush yeah. this one and this we hope we've done it sure yeah hopefully and, and we've also been very busy this year <laughs> we're aware this year has been much spottier than yeah. last year and we're going to try and stick to regular business it's getting to winter Get into winter, be inside more. In theory. Um, so we'll see how we go, but we yeah. still love doing this, and uh-huh. uh, we hope that um, you found this episode particularly enlightening and interesting to dive into what is um, a very um, important yes. film, not just for Amblin Entertainment, Steven Spielberg, but generally as a mm. as a as an account of sure. one of the darkest periods of human history. And we hope we did it some justice in, in this form. And now that we're back, please do also give us, as Josh said, do get in touch. Give us a like, review, subscribe, five stars on Spotify. It does all help. Yeah. Um, Let us know what you think. Indeed. Only if it's positive. Yeah. <laughs> and tell us whether E.T. makes you cry. Um, and if you saw it at IMAX, we didn't oh, get yeah, a chance to watch it, did we? the end. <laughs> I'm so, sure it'll come back around. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now that that, that print's there. <laughs> but, um... I have been Andy Godian. I have been Joshua Glenn. And together we have been rambling and ambling podcasts all about Schindler's List. Please join us next time where we'll be going into going and paying the Flintstones a visit. Until then, we hope you all take care. Much love. <laughs>